and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea, or figure from history, explain its origins, and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I am a columnist with the Iron Newspaper and the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. I just, you really, I just think you can say the little job title stuff you've got. Just, it really trips off the tongue with you. But every time I have to say it, I feel like I just make it You're like, what am kind I? of twatty in a certain yeah. way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have the skill. It's a very good skill. <laughs> uh, so welcome to part two of eugenics. As with part two of Churchill, this one should be subtitled, Here Come the Nazis. <laughs> we left the story of eugenics. And Keynes. And Keynes. It's always, we always seem to stop just before the Nazis uh, gather our strength. So we left the story at the end of part one around the First World War in America, as we're seeing that the British version of eugenics had become rather more hardcore and overtly racist in America. And the strange thing is that you've got, as expected, a bunch of anti-immigrants and white supremacists who are really into it. But also, you still have a lot of progressives in why and who um, I suppose for reasons of kind of strategic practicality and I guess overlap, like the thing you have to sort of hand to you, Jennings, given the scale of the different movements that seem to find a way of accommodating with it, is, is that it really has a, a lot to offer lots of different movements, you right? Know? And lots of different kinds of people with lots of different values. Uh, and they do. So, I mean, the two cases here really are feminism and social democracy, which are two things that, by and large, I would say you and I are rather keen on and that don't come out of the following moments particularly well. So we could pick any number of places, but we could do an origin for feminism's relationship with eugenics with a woman called Margaret Sanger. She opened the first clinic to deal with uh, women's reproduction in New York in 1916. She opened the American Birth Control League, which then becomes Planned Parenthood Federation of America. So, you know, this is someone, I mean, she literally popularized the term birth control, which mm. is absolutely seminal to women's reproductive rights. She was also a eugenicist. There's a very kind of mucky relationship between eugenics and feminism. So on the one hand, the eugenicists are quite wary of women's reproductive rights because, of course, at the beginning, it's mostly about people having more kids, not mm. having less kids. Mm. Though the thing is, as you go into decline towards sort of negative eugenics, that having less kids part becomes more important, if only when they're poor, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, then there's the fact that so much of this ultimately comes down to giving society complete control over women's reproduction. So it shouldn't feel like something that feminism would want to be involved in. Here's Pearson that we spoke about uh, from the UCL unit last episode. He said, women's childbearing activity is essentially part of her contribution to social needs, which would indicate that's not going to be your choice, mate. <laughs> you know, we're going to tell you that's what you can and can't feminist. do. Doesn't sound very feminist, does it? Um, and there is some wariness in feminist circles of what eugenics means. But this is the interesting part. 
Like for a long time, historians would sort of kind of almost justify these early feminists and sort of go, well, look, it was primarily strategic. You know, mm -hmm. there was like a political alliance there. Right. You could frame it in these ways. They didn't really believe it. Actually, most of the, the more modern history that I've read, it doesn't take that view. So it takes the view of like, no, a lot of these people were really, really into this stuff. And there's a reason for that, which is if you go back to our lobster thing with uh, Peterson, right, that view of female sexuality of essentially passive, you know, just waiting for the dominant male to establish it among other males and you just go with that. Well, actually on eugenics, that is not the vision of female sexuality that you have. It's an active choice of female sexuality with a partner, which has the responsibility in it for the fate of the race, mm. you know, for the hygiene of the race. It's like a, a hugely important, now that I've said the hygiene of the race, this is a good time to remind listeners that there is a racist and disability klaxon over the entirety of yeah, both of yeah, these episodes. Ra race hygiene, or in the original German, Rassen hygiene, mm. is, is not a phrase that you, you invented. We want to make that clear. <laughs> no, that's true. It's one that I use comparatively <laughs> rarely, yeah, I would yeah. say, in my day-to-day -day life. So actually, it gives quite a prominent role to women. And I think that made it more palatable in feminist circles, ideologically, not just practically. So here's historian Anne Taylor Allen. Eugenic theory was a basic and formative, not an incidental part of feminist positions on the vitally important themes of motherhood, reproduction, and the state. So Sanger in 1920s kind of seeks alliances with the eugenicists. She's yeah. been rebuffed by the Catholic Church. She's been rebuffed by the American medical establishment. Um, she organizes in 1927 a World Population Congress in Geneva. By 1933, her efforts are so successful that the American Eugenic Society formally embraces her. And they do it with these words. These two great movements have now come to such a thorough understanding and have drawn so closely together as to be almost indistinguishable. It takes a while for her to get there, but 1919 issue of her magazine Birth Control, the headline on the cover is, more children for the fit, less for the unfit. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, she said awful things about preventing criminals and weaklings from having babies, about human waste, about pre preventing the mentally and physically defective from having mm. babies. It's not just about making alliances. Like, she uses that language. And yet, I want to say, she was not herself racist or anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. Unlike her British equivalent, Marie Stopes. Who's horrific. Horrendous. She studied at UCL, actually. Um, she proposed Thanks, sterilizing what she called the hopelessly rotten and racially diseased. Ferocious anti-Semite opposed interracial marriage. And wrote affectionate letters to Hitler. <laughs> so... <laughs> Stopes is a nightmare. Again, like a massively important figure. Like her name is yeah. still remembered today. It's, it's interesting that the names of people like Golden and Pearson have been removed um, yeah. from UCL. And yet, I don't know if you can remove Stopes and Sanger because there's no birth control movement without these people. Yeah. Both of whom were eugenicists and one of whom was also a ferocious racist. It isn't the primary thing that they're aiming for, to mm. be fair. But it has to be said that it is a major current in how they think and in their support for women's reproductive rights. You can't quite disentangle these two things. It's really mucky. And to give you a sense of that, I mean, look at this. In New South Wales, in Australia, there was a group that in 1920 was called the Feminist Club Initiative. Okay, It changes its name to the Racial Hygiene Association of New South Wales. Not a great branding exercise, I would suggest. And then changes its name again in 1960 to the Family Planning Association of Australia. And that really gives you just yeah. how slippery this stuff had become. It's also complicated in another way. 
that is very nuanced. Uh, and I think the, the person who can shine the most light on it and who helps guide you in, in thinking about it is the historian Joanna Schoen, who says, basically, reproductive technologies are not inherently liberating or oppressive. Mm. It's about how you use them. And it's also about the, the thoughts and emotions that come into your head when you hear a word. So if we use the word sterilization, very bad thoughts and associations come mm. into our head. If we use the word vasectomy, that is not the case, right? You just think, oh, my mate's done with having kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to use condoms. Like, that's a different thing. What was happening in lots of these cases is that these things start becoming hopelessly entangled. So the sterilization programs that take place in the interwar years and also the, the post-war years in the vast majority of cases, they are an outright war on female sexuality. Okay? So you look at sort of like interwar sterilization in Switzerland, and it's primarily to women from a low social class, children out of wedlock, that kind of thing. It's clearly an attack on women's sexuality. And you can see that by the numbers. I mean, in Sweden, 93% of the people that are sterilized are women. It's like, surprise, surprise, yeah. right? The only country, by the way, in which there's full gender equality and sterilization, Nazi Germany. Everywhere else, it's primarily directed towards women. However, it is also the case that, and it's clearly documented now, that women who are basically brutalized by society were being forced to go for sterilization as the only form of abortion that they could get. The abortion was contingent on the sterilization. So we know certainly in the 1930s in Switzerland and other countries, it was like a kind of form of birth control, but only because all other forms had been taken away, all other opportunities had been taken away. I mean, the connection between feminism and eugenics is, is, is pretty troubling. Perhaps the most counterintuitive one for me was that eugenics was popular with some representatives of disadvantaged groups who wanted to strengthen their position. This included mm. some Zionists, yeah. like yeah. Max Nordau, and the black activist W.E.B. Du Bois. And Marcus Garvey, right, the black power activist as well, dabbled in this stuff. And in order to overcome prejudice, they felt that they needed their race to be as good, as impressive as it should be. It's almost a form of respectability politics mm. and, also, and also sort of strength. And so they go, well, you know, they won't, won't be able to mistreat black people or Jews if we are the best version of the race. Yeah. So that, again, is a way of showing that it doesn't mean that... All eugenicists are racists. It was also quite popular in Eastern Europe with countries that had formerly been members of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that part of their new nationalism, for example, Czechoslovakia, was like, well, we've got to be the best. We've got to show how good we are. Mm. And eugenics seemed like, you know, a fairly sort of benign way to do that. So mm. we're not talking here about, you know, W. Du Bois is not calling for mass sterilization. But this just shows how broad eugenics was and why I think if you're reading a history book, um, and I'm going to come to John Gray later, but there are people like him who, who slap eugenics on someone and quote like the worst thing they've said, almost as if it's like, yeah, basically Nazis. Yeah. This person you thought yeah. was a liberal is basically a Nazi. And it's like, well, you need to really understand, like, what version of eugenics, what policies were they advocating, yes. what rhetoric were they using? The word itself does not make somebody one of history's villains, although I think in the case of, of Murray Stopes, it's pretty hard to defend. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. I mean, someone did that to our Keynes episode the other day of sort of going, well... You know, you need to mention that he was eugen and you sort of think like there's lots of cases of people like that where you just think that is just not the core part of this story. You know what I mean? Like it's not something that has to be covered, but because the word has become so poisonous, yeah. we'll go into the reasons why it works as this sort of smear machine yeah. against people who don't like. This is probably best summarized actually by the Dutch historian uh, Frank de Cotter, who says this: 
Eugenics belonged to the political vocabulary of virtually every significant modernizing force between the two world wars. And that is it. Like that, it's kind of like part of the full horror of it is realizing how broadly spread it was. And that includes um, social democracy and advocates for a welfare state. So the real case in point here is not Britain or the US, it's Scandinavia. And that in itself is kind of fascinating, right? Because these are non-colonial powers. This is Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark. They either no longer have colonies or they never did. Yeah. They're really racially homogenous. You know, there's no there's no obvious that that sort of thing of like, well, what are the Italians doing coming to the US example going on in Sweden at the time? All of this is directed towards the domestic population, the indigenous population. So it starts in 1928 in the Swiss canton of Vaud. Then it's in Denmark in 1929, Sweden and Norway in 1934, Finland in 1935. And it is a really sustained program of sterilization. The sterilization program, you know, in all of these countries is directed very, very broadly indeed and towards tens of thousands of people, people that are typically called asocial, work shy, uh, sex workers, the mentally ill, vagrants. But what's really fascinating about it is why it took place there. And the arguments, there was a lot to, to a certain extent, the people that were supporting eugenics weren't actually that interested in the traditional eugenics arguments. They were very different. These arguments were coming from civil servants, from administrators, from medical personnel, and they were primarily about the sterilization of women on the grounds of it being cheaper for the state. That thought came directly from the embryonic creation of the welfare state. Once you have a welfare state, you're suddenly in this position where you're like, well, actually, we're spending quite a lot of mm -hmm. money here. And, you know, this is early days. We're not sure how this whole thing is going to work. So the quickest way to reduce the expenditure is to start these really quite widespread and robust sterilization programs. And that sterilization program, that eugenics program in Scandinavia, has a long lifetime that goes on well past World War II. Because it's not as hard as you might think to understand why what now seems like a horrific idea made sense to people. Because they, they, they thought, okay, there are all these ailments in society. Now you could say, and this therefore you know, weakens the, the race or it costs us a lot of money, or you could just go, it causes a lot of human suffering. Mm. And then you have a very simplistic sense of genetics, and go, oh, well, it's just handed down like this. And so you go, well, you know, if you don't want, for whatever reason, lots of, you know, whether that be an alcoholic or an epileptic, whatever, then it's better, surely, if they're just not born. You don't kill them, mm -hmm. but it's surely better that we don't have more people, you know, born like that. Now, obviously, there there, there is something horrific about that, but it's also for me, what explains why people were able to rationalize it. Yes. And remember, lots of these people, their social status was elevated by the success of eugenics. So if you're a psychiatrist, let's say, you know, in most of these cases, these events were taking place in asylums. You know, you, you're just basically like the manager of an institution that no one likes to think about very mm. much. Suddenly, if you embrace eugenics, you're advising governments. You're at international conferences. You're one of the sort of the ushers of the racial future, you know? You're an expert in the existential fate of your people. 
Like your social status is mm. massively elevated. And we see that, you know, really quite singularly in Scandinavia. We see exactly the same process going on in Germany. They they would claim in Scandinavia, by the way, that these were all voluntary civilizations. It's and some of them certainly were. We absolutely know that. Mm. It is also the case that in these institutions with the kind of people that were being targeted, the whole concept of consent, especially when things come with a real sense of sort of uh, confidence and insistence by the institution around you just kind of melts away and it's simply not an assurance that they can give. And like you say, a lot of these people are, you know, developmentally disabled and it's mm -hmm. very, very hard to give, you know, informed consent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, so these are perhaps people who were not out and out racist genocide heirs, um, but I think we should perhaps get back to the people who were. <laughs> now, we recorded a Patreon bonus episode about American proto-Nazis and eugenics. I don't want to repeat myself, but I do just need to give a quick sense of like how far it went. And I, I, I sort of owe this lead to, to Adam Rutherford's book, Control. In The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald invents a racist book called The Rise of the Coloured Empires by a man named Goddard. Now, of course, that could be a reference to Henry Goddard. Mm -hmm. um, but it was based on two real books, The Passing of the Great Race by the conservationist Madison Grant, 1916, and The Rising Tide of Colour, The Threat Against White World Supremacy by the historian Lothrop Stoddard, 1920. As the titles suggest... They were full-on white supremacists. Right. Uh, they were rather concerned by the First World War um, that they had, thought would have a dysgenic effect. As, as one American eugenicist, David Starr Jordan, said, the cream of the race will be taken and the skimmed milk will be left. Mm. So there was this huge fear that not only within America would you not have you know, strong enough genes, but that across the whole world you would be swamped would be their word, mm. you know, by what they called the lesser races. So they went back to uh, Gobineau, the French scientific racist that we spoke about in the last episode, to argue that white people were committing race suicide by diluting their Nordic blood. Right. I mean, you literally, I mean, you cannot get more racist than, than, than these books. <laughs> um, Grant wrote, the laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit and human life is valuable only when it is of use to community or race. Mm. Now, eugenicists, as we said, were primarily concerned with the health of their own nations. So they penalised criminals, alcoholics, uh, paupers, mentally ill. But Grant Stoddard thought in global terms. And once you apply it on a global scale, then you are talking about genocide. Right, right. And in The Great Gatsby, Tom Buchanan, who quotes this book, says, it's all scientific stuff, it's been proved, which is part of the appeal of eugenics. I'm not racist, it's just science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what eugenics enabled people to do. They put a sort of a white coat mm. over the white hood. Well, that's what we mean, right? When we talk about, you know, giving this biological grounding to your existing societal inequalities, yeah. that's what it allows you to do. It provides respectability and scientific validity to what are ultimately just your biases and prejudices. Uh, now, Adolf Hitler... Um, Heard of him. Read these books when he was in jail in the early 1920s. He actually plagiarised passages of Madison Grant in Mein Kampf. Oh, wow. Obviously introducing his own obsession with anti-Semitism sure. as the guiding lie there. He wrote a fan letter to Grant calling his book his Bible. Oh. We will come back to Hitler. <laughs> Do you think we should use that for our merch mugs? We will come back to Hitler. We will come Hitler. back to Hitler. <laughs> uh, be before moving to Germany... You have to understand, like, how influenced by America that they were. Now, Harry Lachlan, who we talked about 
again, leading uh, racist American eugenicist. His testimony to the Johnson Committee on the Genetic Inferiority of Southern and Eastern Europeans was essential to the Immigration Act of 1924. Hugely important, punitive act. Uh, in the hearings, he drew up 65 different racial categories. Oof. Very so, extensive. Which is very extensive. I mean, that's when you're into like full-on crackpot territory. I think Gobineau, when he started, had like three races. Mm -hmm. And Colloquian's like, no, it's actually 65. And the American elites were very sympathetic to eugenics, not just passing these laws, but endorsing sterilizations and so on in the courts. In 1927, there was a famous Supreme Court case of Buck v. Bell about whether a young woman named Carrie Buck should indeed be sterilized against her will because she came from what they called defective stock. Wow. There didn't seem to be that much wrong with her, right. to be honest. It was sort of like maybe poor, there was some alcoholism in her mm. family, some promiscuity, which was seen as a sign of oh, you know, yeah. bad genes. Now, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the heroes of our free speech episode, mm. uh-oh, <laughs> wrote the decision. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Jesus Christ. Now, during the Nuremberg trials after the war, SS officer Otto Hoffman, one of the architects of the final solution, actually quoted Holmes's decision in his defense and various American state mm. eugenics laws and said, look what America was doing. Yeah. How was what we did so different? Not an unfair argument. This might be our most origin story episode ever, right? Because now all we're doing is just going through all of our heroes from previous episodes and just gunning those fuckers down. There are no heroes. That is the slogan of origin story. No more heroes. Everyone you admire has done something terrible. <laughs> So German eugenics starts in basically a similar kind of moral terrain as British eugenics. And there's an 1895 book, The Excellence of Our Race and the Protection of the Weak, which doesn't really demonstrate the excellence of the race and doesn't intend to protect the weak. And it is by um, a man called Alfred Plutz, who is the founder of German eugenics. He's the one that coins the term Rassenhygiene. Yeah. Which sounds sort of worse than it is, the phrase race hygiene, in mm. that, it, again, because of that use of the worst race back then wasn't necessarily race as we understand it now. It basically just means eugenics. And I don't think that he's any worse than Galton, really. Um, not they're about in, level. Well, not initially, because he initially thought that he had proven that anti-Semitism was nonsense. Right, right. You know, yeah. and there was no evidence that the Jewish people were genetically inferior. And yet, in old age... He's a committed Nazi who appears to have decided that Jewish people are a problem right. after all. Yes. So maybe a sort of similar path to Galton. You have to wonder if Galton was just, had lived longer or been born a bit later. Mm. You know, where would he have stood in the 1930s? There That's does seem to be this thing where you start off kind of reasonable and then there's something about the sort of ineluctable logic of eugenics yes. and the way that things are moving the consensus is moving, where you end up acquiring prejudices that you didn't start with. I think that's spot on. I think it corrodes them. But it's also the case that they are acclimatizing and seeing what is possible within the societies that they're in. So yes. in Britain, the eugenics guys are, are kind of hindered by what goes on in Nazi Germany because they're like, oh shit, well, not like that, we promise, even though, frankly, like a lot of their stuff did look quite a lot like that. And in Nazi Germany, if you were an advocate for this stuff, you're like, well, here's a mechanism, here's a vehicle, you know, in which we can do it. If I have to, you know, join the Nazi party and 
say blah, blah, blah. I've kind of got to do that anyway, you know. So at least we can see through our program here. And this, this, I, this surprised me, actually, that even before Hitler, racial anthropology, as they called it, was on the Weimar curriculum. And the home of eugenics there, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, was receiving funding from the Rockefeller Foundation in the US. And one of the books that Hitler read in jail was 1921's Principles of Human Heredity and Racial Hygiene mm. by three scientists. One of the authors, Fritz Lenz, argued that the central mission of all politics is race hygiene. He thought that citizens should receive certificates of heredity to permit or forbid them to breed. Mm. Uh, the leading Nazi, Rudolf Hess, later said, national socialism is nothing but applied biology. And sometimes I think we forget sort of Hitler's interest in science. I mean, very, a very specific interest in science, yeah, yeah, which served yeah. his prejudices. But in a lot of propaganda, he was known as the, the doctor or the physician of the German people. No shit. Huh. I never knew that. The entire scientific and medical professions were corrupted by his obsession with the Aryan master race. But you have to think, would that have happened had Germany not already been one of the homes of eugenics? Like after America... Mm -hmm. Maybe that was where it was most popular. So again, the soil was already fertilized. Mm. And it wasn't like Hitler needed to sort of persuade anybody of the basic idea. Yes, exactly. Exactly. He was operating within an understood narrative, you know, a framework. And, it's in, and so there's some really good research in some of these books about eugenics. It goes into a lot of the countries that we haven't discussed, and it, it's constantly pointing out about how it's different in Iran, and it's different in Mexico, mm. and it's different in Brazil, and the, all these different countries, their religious traditions, their political cultures, their scientific traditions produce different versions of eugenics. And with Germany, everything lined up in the worst possible direction. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So then Hitler comes to power in 1933, and... I mean, look, eugenics legislation is like one of his very first acts. Yeah. Like and the laws for the prevention of offspring with hereditary diseases. That's based, as you said before, on the sterilization legal models that were written by Lachlan at Cold Spring Harbor in the US. The targets for sterilization are the feeble-minded, the schizophrenic, the epileptic, bipolar, Huntington's, blind, the deaf, uh, alcoholics. Uh, 75,000 people are sterilized between 1933 and 1939. There is another law, the Nuremberg Race Laws in 1935, making it compulsory for partners to be checked for hereditary disease. All we know is that by the end of the war, 1% of the German population between the ages of 14 and 50 had been sterilized. So what, what happens between 1933 and 1939 is slower than you might like the world turns against Hitler. Because early on, some people think, you know, as they did with Mussolini, it's like, oh, here's, here's a guy who seems to be sort of getting things done. Mm. And British eugenicists are pretty much disgusted by what he's doing. The Americans, however, recognize it as basically their own work. Frederick Osborne, a co-founder of the American Eugenics Society, called the Nazi eugenics program the most important experiment which has ever been tried. Another American complained, the Germans are beating us at our own game. You know. And Heidelberg University actually gave Harry Lachlan an honorary degree. And to cap it all off, Lothrop Stoddard visited Germany in 1940. Fucking hell. 1940. Um, attended some of the hearings of the German eugenics court to decide who should be sterilized. Decided it was almost too conservative, by which he meant too cautious rather mm. than too right wing. And he was like, they could have gone a bit further. 
and that the the racial laws in America, the one drop law of um, you know interracial relationships, were deemed too extreme by Nazi Germany. What's the one drop law? The one drop law is basically one drop of blood from another race makes somebody uh, no longer white. Right. Okay. And so when Hitler was drawing up these laws about you know, the definition of Jewishness, he was like, well, one drop, that's just too, that's just too extreme. <laughs> so that, there's not- As a sentence, when Hitler was drawing up the law on the yeah, definition of Jewishness, he thought the Americans were too extreme. It's quite extraordinary. So you cannot say that the Nazis corrupted what the American eugenicists were trying to do. Right. They did exactly what the American eugenicists were trying to do, but often weren't allowed to. Mm. And then once the Second World War began, the Nazis are able to progress to something, of course, which never happened in a democracy, forced euthanasia. So this, this goes back to two things that we spoke about in the fascism episode. The first one is the very aggressive radicalizing effect of the war on uh, Nazi policy, and in, in fact, as it is Soviet policy. Just once the war starts, as Hitler put it, lots of things became possible that had previously not been possible for us. And this is one example mm. of that. The other thing, and this is crucial to, I think, to get for what comes next, it actually relates back to, do you remember that thing I told you that when I did the first draft of How to Be a Liberal, I sent a, a thing to Richard Evans, the historian, mm. for him to look at the bits on Nazism. And he said, look, the thing you have got to get right is that, that attacks on Jews were in a different category to other attacks. Mm. There is one thing which is about racial pollution. That's the stuff you aim towards yourself, your own group. Mm. And this is the subject of what we're talking about today. Mm. Far from Because we have this association of eugenics and genocide, right. actually it's almost the opposite of genocide in that it is cleaning up your own group. You couldn't commit genocide, it's your own group. You are simply targeting those you think are weak or polluting within the group. And then there are other groups, and then there is of course the race enemy, which is the Jew. So the euthanasia process starts with the birth of this severely disabled child to two Nazi parents. Um, the child is blind, it's suffering from convulsions, the, the parents call him a monster and they ask the hospital to kill him. Um, the hospital says it's illegal, so they petition Hitler directly. And he sends one of his officials to assess the situation, the baby is killed, and pretty much then the killings begin. Bear in mind, as we said last time, uh, and a prominent American surgeon was acquitted for doing exactly yes, yes. what this doctor said was illegal in Nazi Germany. Yeah, that's, that's really telling. So the project is codename Action T4. It targets schizophrenics, the blind, the deaf, epileptics, those with Huntington's, the feeble-minded. The victims are sort of brought in typically from um, from institutions. Uh, they're made to think like they're going into a shower so nobody panics, and they're then gassed using carbon monoxide. And initially 30,000 die. Um, you can tell by that process why people associate this so strongly with the Holocaust. Yeah. And indeed, the specific people and the techniques and the equipment are then later used in the killing centers and Reinhard or death camps, you know, Bauzek, Treblinka, etc. However... This is a different process targeting a very different group for those reasons I said earlier. It's about the social pollution within the race rather than a, a different race. So actually, the, the mix-up in our heads is actually quite unhelpful. Mm. These are both evil events, but they are very distinct evil events with very distinct 
uh, sets of incentives for the Nazi regime. What I found extraordinary, I mean, 300,000 people were euthanized, 200,000 in Germany and Austria and 100,000 in occupied countries. Even in Nazi Germany, this was considered horrific. It inspired the only significant protest movement yep. against the Nazi policy in wartime. Two years later, it was officially halted. I mean, it continued in some form. But officially, Hitler backed down, which I'm not aware of him doing on, on any other yes. domestic policy. Then, of course, the same methods are applied to millions of Jews. Yeah. So it's no wonder that people conflate these two atrocities. Yeah. But one is, is specifically about eugenics and another is about Hitler's insane anti-Semitism. Yeah. There's also, by the way, a kind of a, I don't know, I suppose a horrific coda to it, really, which is it inadvertently demonstrates the scientific weakness of eugenics. During this period, between 1933 and 1945, the Nazis kill somewhere between three quarters and all of the schizophrenics in, in Germany. After the war, the number of new cases of schizophrenia in Germany soar much, much higher growth in numbers compared to places like the Netherlands or the UK or the US. And that's because, <laughs> it's partly because of dominant and recessive genes. Mm. It's partly because of the complexity of how of, of genetics. So just because someone is demonstrating a dominant gene doesn't mean that that's all the hereditable qualities that would transfer the stuff. Also, it doesn't speak to any of the social inputs which produce schizophrenia too. And secondly, that genetics is extremely complicated with lots of different characteristics, a characteristic being based on lots of different genes and genes producing lots of different characteristics in the individual. All this science, this future genetic science that is sort of understood over the course of the 20th century demonstrates that even if eugenics were not morally obscene, it would be practically impossible to fulfill its aims anyway. Well, there's a, I mean, this is probably somewhat crude, but I like to think of sort of genetics as a science, you Eugenics is a pseudoscience mm. because there is such a history of rigging the data to suit prejudices and what is called the monogenetic fallacy, this idea that just this one gene can be responsible for a, a condition. It doesn't hold up. And there's that really, it sort of makes it easier to attack eugenics, you know, just because you're not just attacking it on a moral level. You're going, well, it doesn't work. Mm. Like it's wrong. I mean, it wouldn't be any morally better if it was correct. No. But it wasn't. No. But it's still pertinent as to whether it even works. You know what I mean? It's like, because that's what it is to fail in your own terms. They obviously fail in our terms, terms on a right, moral yeah. basis. But even on their own terms, they were complete catastrophic failures. So this is where eugenics led, right? This is the end of one particular chapter. There's a really powerful line from uh, author Elof Axel Carlson, who's written a history of eugenics. And he basically says, OK, you expect the racists to have embraced it. Mm. It's more difficult for us to understand is how caring people who did so much for humanity were able to include ideas that we now look on as inhumane. It is not easy for me to acknowledge that liberals, socialists, outstanding physicians, social workers, philanthropists and brilliant scholars, some of them Jewish, were as much a contributing force to the eugenics movement and what led to its perversion in the Holocaust as were the mean-spirited, psychopathic, selfish, ignorant and bigoted enthusiasts of the movement. Yeah. And I think that really does nail the moral unease around this whole topic.
Not long from now, Origin Story will be going on its uh, interseasonal hiatus. And in that time, you may be looking for other podcasts to listen to. And if so, you're in luck because there is a new science podcast out from Podmasters, the people behind Origin Story and Oh God, What Now? It's called Why? It asks questions about life, love, the cosmos, atoms and everything in between. Presenters include Doctor of Anthropology Anna Machin, founder of The Quietus and author Luke Turner, podcaster Ollie Mann and broadcaster Emma Kennedy. Some topics coming up include could tiny robots stop the antibiotics apocalypse? Why is being bad good for us? Which is something a eugenicist might have said. And why do animals have regional accents? Episodes are out twice weekly. It's on Mondays and Thursdays. If you want to find out more, visit widepodcast.co.uk. Okay, here's another thing which I think is counterintuitive, at least for me. I used to think that the Nazis discredited eugenics for good. Mm. It was like, oh my God, what were we thinking? This is where it leads to Joseph Mengele and, and doing experiments in Auschwitz. And we should say that in 1946, there is the doctor's trial yeah. after the war, where 23 doctors and scientists are charged with war crimes and crimes against humanity. 16 are found guilty, seven are hanged. And from that, the post-Nuremberg bit, which mostly focuses on sort of medical you know, experimentation and the like, comes the sort of what we think of as the devastation of the brand, the eugenics brand. And the Nuremberg Code mm -hmm. for some, yeah, medical research. Actually, nobody outside Germany paid a price for it. They just kept going. They just replaced the word eugenics with genetics. Yeah. Sterilizations, as you said, continued in the US on quite a large scale to the 1970s. One scientist wrote in 1961 that eugenics had been discredited as a result of its spurious use in support of the atrocities committed by those with class and race prejudices but thought that, you know, you could still just sort of rehabilitate it and go, well, if, what if we do it without the racists? Which is somewhat optimistic. <laughs> Even in Germany, <laughs> right, Fritz Lentz, mm. who mentioned big influence on Hitler, and Ottmar Verschwer, uh, who was the first employee of Joseph Mengele, were rehabilitated. They worked in German universities until their death from natural causes. They were defended by eugenicists from Britain and America. Um, and Lentz had the brass balls to complain that the Holocaust would undermine the study of human genetics and racial theory. <laughs> the Holocaust, which he had been involved with. So you get some movement. Julian Huxley, who uh, brother of Aldous Huxley, he was, a, he was a eugenicist. But as first director of UNESCO, he drafted a statement in 1950 that race was a social myth and that there was no right. genetic basis mm. for it. Very progressive. Very important statement. And yet, dissenters formed the International Institute for Advanced Race Research. Mm. This is something you're doing immediately after World War II. And one thing that really shocked me when I was researching overpopulation, Bannock, this came up a little bit in the climate denial episodes, that there was a huge post-war uh, anxiety, which I think peaked in the 60s and 70s, that there were just too many people and the world couldn't support them and that right. this was uh, wrapped up in environmentalism. And this guy called Harrison Brown, who was an atomic physicist during the war, and he became a leading environmentalist. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, did a lot of good work. Anyway, he writes a book called The Challenge of Man's Future. And he asks, is there anything that can be done to prevent the long-range degeneration of human stock? <laughs> that word again. 
First, man can discourage unfit persons from breeding. Second, he can encourage breeding by those persons who are judged fit on the basis of physical and mental testing and examinations of the records of their ancestors. <laughs> 1954. If civilization survives, it is likely in the long run we'll be able to slow down and perhaps even to halt the deterioration of the species. The methods that will be employed would probably not be palatable to many of us who are alive today. <laughs> Nevertheless, the human animal is a flexible creature and has thus far been able to adjust his outlook to his needs with remarkable agility. Mm -hmm. So, to him, there was no sense in which eugenics was like a busted flush. Yeah that was just indelibly tainted with atrocities. It's like he doesn't use the word eugenics. But if you, if I'd read that out to you and said this was from like 1922 yeah, instead yeah. of 54, you would believe it. It's, what's incredible to me is just like just how little introspection there is. Yeah. You see it among the Brits. You see it in Scandinavia. Like the sterilizations in Scandinavia. I mean, Sweden, it peaks in 1950, but it continues until 1975. In Norway, it goes on until 1976. Finland until 1970, they sterilized 50,000 people. What's incredible is it's not until really the sort of 90s that Scandinavia starts having a conversation with itself about that process. Until then, it's just sort of unnoticed almost, certainly completely uncontroversial. It's not part of a, an anguished moral debate about what you should be doing. We th we have this historical view of right, the, you have the doctor's trial and everything changed. It just doesn't at all. Not a single eugenicist seemed to have paid a significant professional price mm. for what they were advocating. These American proto-Nazis we're talking about, they were fine mm. because they weren't actual German Nazis. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing which, is, which some people might know about because it's quite kind of notorious that Keith Joseph, you know, really is a main intellectual architect of Thatcherism blew up his chances of becoming Tory leader in 1974 with a notorious speech. Do you know this? No, no. Speech, right. So he said, a high and rising proportion of children are being born to mothers least fitted to bring children into the world. Some are of low intelligence, most of low educational attainment. They're producing problem children. The balance of our human stock is threatened. Oh, wow. Now, this was immensely controversial. This sort of fucked his career, at least in that level. He obviously went on to serve in Thatcher's cabinet and be mm -hmm. enormously influential. But it knocked him out of the running because, you know, he just comes out there and starts talking about human stock. Yeah. So it's sort of, it, it's interesting that just as at the time, you know, in the early 20th century, it was both very popular and very contentious. Yeah. You still get, you get these incidents in post-war where, you know, you said in the 1970s, people are still being sterilized in Sweden or certain American states. Yeah. And yet Keith Joseph can't get away with saying that. Yeah, it's so it's a really mixed picture. There's also, I mean, we should briefly mention that the, the, the late 20th century, the, this stuff is incredibly pernicious in many countries of the world. In Canada, sterilization programs against First Nation women. In China, I mean, the one-child policy Ooh, yeah. in 1979 kind of really focuses attention on the quality of births and on genetic defects. So in 1995, you get what is literally called the eugenics law, and then has its name changed <laughs> to maternal and infant health care law, which makes it sound much fluffier, um, that makes prenatal testing in case of genetic disorder. Order, uh, compulsory. There's an Iron Fist campaign where 10,000 women are sterilized over three months for having more than one baby. And there are reliable reports now that sterilization is being carried out against the Uyghur Muslims mm. in the re-education camps. And I think, again, this is something that people 
sort of sometimes categorize under population control, something mm -hmm. to do with overpopulation. But the purest form of overpopulation anxiety does not make any distinction. So I would say once it like Paul Ehrlich, author of the population bomb, he's often associated with this. And he's sort of, I've seen him blamed for these laws, which actually started before he, in India and China, before he published his book. But he was like Americans too. Like there's a big problem with Americans. He himself had a vasectomy so that he couldn't have any more children. Mm. So he was trying to apply this kind of universal moral code. It's like there are too many people and that includes all people. Yeah. Now, you can obviously disagree yeah. very yeah. strongly with him, but that is quite different to when you start discriminating. And it's like whether a baby is terminated or not depends on whether it's a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. As soon as you start making distinctions, that's eugenics. So you could say you've had eugenics on a larger scale in India and China than you had it in Nazi Germany. If you're talking in, in, in terms yes. of sheer numbers, yes. Well, I mean, India. I mean, India has a long track record on this in colonial India and post-colonial India. In fact, another sort of simplicity that is good to get out of the way, right, is that sense of eugenics being linked to this kind of white colonialism. It's like it is oh, not no. just white colonialism at all. Like every country is prone to having exactly this thought process for whatever its designated group is. So, this will bring us closer to the present day. What happened in America is it came back around to the idea of innate intelligence. In 1994, psychologist Richard J. Herrnstein and political scientist Charles Murray published The Bell Curve, an inflammatory bestseller, which argued, among other things, that there were racial differences in intelligence. This was embraced by conservatives, condemned by many others. <laughs> Stephen Jay Gould, a man, wrote a damning review. He said, The Bell Curve contains no new arguments and presents no compelling data to support its anachronistic social Darwinism. I must therefore conclude that its initial success in winning such attention must reflect the depressing temper of our time. The New York Times called it a scabrous piece of racial pornography masquerading as serious scholarship. Mm. And yet, Charles Murray, who is the only author who's still alive, is still popular in conservative circles. And the bell curve ideas have become very common in Silicon Valley. And uh, there's a good recent New Statesman essay by Quinn Slobodian about the cult of IQ in the tech world. Richard Hanania, are you aware of this guy? Mm, I suspect I'm going to be happier not to know him than I will be in a few minutes when I've got to know him. Conservative shit stirrer who is uh, uh, once extremely racist and then will interview Steven Pinker on his podcast. You know, that idea of just like the lines are not being drawn here. Right. He's written about dysgenic fertility and proposed forcibly sterilizing people with low IQs. Oh, fucking hell. Uh, another... Sort of important. He was like a he was a blogger and thinker on the right. Curtis Yarvin has argued for an IQ threshold for voting and a sort of matrix-style incarceration of the unfit in like sort of virtual reality pods. Right. Elon Musk constantly talks about whether the right people, uh, people like him, are having children. Jesus. Um, similar ideas appear in the rationalist and long-termist movements, which we'll be talking about in a in a future episode. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying uh, everyone in these movements or, you know, everybody in tech or everybody on the right even believes this. But there are certainly more people than you would like. Slobodian writes, the IQ fetishists like to think they're living in a near future where they, the pure creative information workers, have been elevated through their high intelligence and innate ability. They were not simply in the right place at the right time, bobbing along in a sea of liquidity in an era of zero interest rates. <laughs> they were geniuses. And I think a lot of people would not 
recognize this obsession with IQ if they're not aware of the history of IQ with eugenics. But clearly, that's what a lot of these guys in Silicon Valley do think of. Mm -hmm. And they really do think that intelligence is something that you were born with and it's not about education. And you were a very, very special person and you should therefore have more children. And, and these low IQ people shouldn't have children, shouldn't vote, shouldn't even circulate in society. And, you know, this article puts it together in a really quite unignorable way. And you're kind, I was kind of like, why is this not a bigger deal? Mm that you essentially have these this new generation of eugenicists. And I think, you know, your Toby Youngs and your Dominic Cummings, they're sort of swimming in the same water. I think they're reading some of the same sort of blog posts. Right. Dominic Cummings obviously thinks of himself as an innate genius, yes. right? Yes. Now, does that mean that they're virtually Nazis? Not always. <laughs> But it really gives the lie to the idea that kind of eugenics is just taboo these days. Yeah. And by the way, you know, the most obvious newsy thing for us is the Dominic Cummings angle. It doesn't really matter what Dominic Cummings thinks about anything. What really does matter is like what lots of the tech guys think, because their degree of political influence on a global scale yeah. now is absolutely immense. And in fact, you can see that the last time Rishi Sunak sat down with Elon Musk, it's Rishi Sunak asking Elon Musk right. the questions, not the other way around. Um, so it gives you an impression of where the dynamics of power are and how potentially dangerous it is for those ideas to be hanging around with that kind of group of people. And the IQ fetishes trouble me more than what some people see as, as sort of, you know, backdoor eugenics, which is screening embryos for certain disabilities and hereditary conditions. You know, and so some people see, for example, um, choosing not to carry a baby who would be born with Down syndrome as backdoor eugenics. Yeah. Um, I've got a family member with, with Down syndrome. Mm, so do I. You know... <laughs> Sort of quite sensitive to that. Also, I mean, the, the, the Dr. Down, after whom the syndrome is named, um, had some pretty hair-raising ways of talking about these people. Um, now, I don't think amniocentesis, and I don't think any, or Huntington's is a, is a, is a better example because that's a hereditary disease which doesn't manifest often until you're past the point where you've had children. So mm -hmm. you, don't, it's, you don't know if you're going to pass it on. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so I think that these kinds of screening... The point is that they are voluntary, and I can understand why perhaps a Catholic would go that all of this is atrocious, you know, that it's atrocious to kind of like uh, deprive an embryo of a right to life mm -hmm. because it would be born with a disability. You know, that's a, that's a legitimate point of view. But to say that all screening is eugenics, I can't sign up to because the whole point is, is that it's voluntary. And as soon as it becomes involuntary, you're in trouble. I think it's where's your unit. I think the answer to the Downs right, uh, right. question takes us back to the origin of what we were talking about. Where's your unit? In the case of screening on Downs, you're providing individual choice for individual reasons. You made that decision on your own basis. Yeah, not for the good of the nation. Exactly. That's it. I think for it to be eugenics, it has to be about the the kind of the horticulture of the group of the race of the population of the nation that's what it's about it's at that level the moment that you were talking about individual choice it simply isn't eugenics but also 
not even just that you offer the individual choice, mm. it's that the incentive is for individual choice, not for the good of the group. That to me is the absolute dividing yeah. line. And it's the moral dividing line that led so many people who might otherwise call themselves liberals or modernists mm. to make such tragic and appalling moral mistakes. And it's interesting that most of these histories, they sort of end in the present day. And whenever the book is published, they're talking about gene editing or mm. further back, you know, artificial insemination, whatever it might be, and going, well, this could lead in dark directions. And of course, it's true. A lot of the time you are essentially trusting society to use this technology well. Yeah. But you almost have no other choice. You can't abolish the technology. And so you just, there are quite a lot of things that are possible that in the hands of Hitler would be used for atrocities. It doesn't make the things themselves atrocious. Mm. What bothers me in the other direction, I was reading um, John Gray's Black Mass. Mm. And John Gray repeats himself quite a lot. He's a conservative philosopher. And one of his, his sort of repeated riffs is look at these Enlightenment figures, look at these progressives who were racist or who were eugenicists. Yeah. And he uses that to sort of suggest his, his pessimistic conservative belief that all attempts to improve the world lead to massacres. He's one of those people that, you know, utopianism inevitably leads to the gulag and, gulag and the death camp. And I found that deeply dishonest and flattening of all the different individuals, the sort of the journeys that went that they went on, that some of them retreated from eugenics like H.G. Wells. Others seem to get deeper and deeper into it, you know, up to the point where they're basically approving of Nazi sterilization programs. They've all got these different ideas and motives. And as soon as you you try and smear Almost the idea of like progress or just science. You know what I mean? It just enlightenment. The idea that science could inform policy. If you immediately just go, oh, eugenics. So in a way, as we've discussed, if you say fascist is like this kind of argument ender, or it's meant to be. It's just like as soon as you say fascist, as soon as you're associating, call someone a Nazi, you're associating them with the Holocaust. That is the end of it. Mm. And eugenics is kind of a slightly diluted version of that. As soon as you say eugenics, you're implying, you know, you're Joseph Mengele, the angel of death. And that's not, that doesn't really illuminate what these people were thinking. And it certainly doesn't say, oh, well, you can never use science to improve humanity's lot. So I just wanted to sort of not to, certainly not to defend eugenics, but to go, well, this story is as dark as it is because of the pre-existence of racism and the number of prejudices that were, were sort of piled into that. And I suppose gen this field of genetics has spent the last few decades trying to get away from that but you are still going to come across geneticists and other scientists and all manner of people who have views that would not surprise a 1920s eugenicist. I think the key with what you're saying with Gray is just the kind of laziness and the cynicism of it. Like if there's a moral lesson to get from all this, it's 
don't go in for that attitude. Be really vigilant against yourself and the, the kind of people who you would naturally just think of as must be the goodies. So it says, actually look at how vulnerable we are to making really catastrophic moral judgments on what we think are, you know, just trying to make the world a better place, just trying to improve, you know, public health or the status of the groups that I care about. Be really vigilant against those very easy, quick moral judgments against the goodies and baddies, the instant associations you have with certain words to think that they've offered you a clear account of what their consequences would be. Interrogate yourself. And if you're just using it to go over history going, look at that one that I don't like anyway, he's a bastard. Yeah, you know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Then you're just not doing any kind of justice to the material or to your own moral judgment. So that is the long, dark, <laughs> grey, <laughs> messy... Uh, story of eugenics. Thanks for listening to this episode of Origin Story. You can see all of our sources in the show notes and give us feedback via the Patreon page or at Origin Storycast on Twitter. And we will be doing another extra bit where we go into those sources in more detail. If you are a Patreon backer, stick around. If you are not, but you'd like to join up, go to patreon.com slash originstorypod. You'll get advanced episodes, bonus episodes, merchandise, early ticket access, and, like I said, the new shiny bonus bit. Guys, that was our penultimate subject for this season of Origin Story. We're going to be back for the season finale next week, where we're going to talk about the wacky wild world of effective altruism. We'll see you then. Origin Story Season 4 is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Simon Williams. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey, and art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production. <laughs>